with Will Arkin, who's been on here several times before. And our dynamic has solidified into me fanboying over his work and Will eventually calling me an idiot at some point. And uh, I think it would be disappointing if we did anything but that today. We've talked about your book, Unmanned. We've talked about The Generals Have No Clothes, which I absolutely adore. We've done History in One Act, and today is On That Day, I believe your newest book, published on August 17th, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and I'll let you introduce yourself in a second, but it, I was thinking earlier about the Voltaire quote, right, that I always parrot because I'm a pseudo-intellect who thinks I'm smarter if I quote other people, is, you know, the sign of an intelligent man is he who can entertain an idea without necessarily believing it. And then I would I thought, well, what's one step above that? And history in one act made me believe that 9-11 was absolutely had some sort of forewarning to the U.S. government and they let it happen. On that day has me completely convinced that it was 100 percent organic and they just fumbled the entire thing before, during and after. And so whereas I thought I was cool because I could entertain both ideas, that makes you a lot smarter than me because you could actually write both ideas but please introduce yourself sir well i am smarter than you Tom, you and that's why you have the podcast and i'm the guest exactly. um uh well you know on that day is the product of uh 20 years of introspection and research about 9 11 from the very day in which i uh, was called to nbc from my home in vermont to be a commentator and an, an analyst of what was going on wasn't particularly an Al-Qaeda expert, but I was a real expert on U.S. air power. And everyone knew that in a remote country like Afghanistan, once the bombing started, when it started, that it would be a predominantly air power war. And then also in the wake of 9-11, there were really interesting questions, if you uh, can take yourself back to that time of continuity of government, of what it was that the Bush administration was actually up to. And uh, and I think that kind of uh, started a, a, a multi-decade inquiry on my part as to uh, all that didn't go right on 9-11 and what we might learn from that. And then also uh, as I explore in history in one act, why we have so little interest in who the terrorists were as people, who, what their motivations were, et cetera. But on 9-11 itself, which is the subject of on that day, uh, it's a minute-by-minute timeline of sort of what the government did overlaid over the events of the day. You know, really, I came away with... Um, uh, an overwhelming feeling of uh, of, of sadness. Um, you know, actually, in my mind, I know this was probably going to be unpopular with many people, but uh, I thought George Bush actually did a good job uh, on 9/11 itself. Uh, he was insist he was insistent upon retaining control of. The government. He was insistent upon coming back to Washington. And so even though the news media was going blah, blah, blah about George Bush, you know, being missing from Washington, you know, he was missing from Washington because the intelligence agencies failed to have any useful prediction as to when an, an attack would occur or where. And then second, um, how miserable Donald Rumsfeld was uh, in both being out of touch, uh, out of his mind, 
and uh, and also at the same time really making poor decisions, which which is which I think are decisions that still have not been fully examined. And I'm kind of shocked that the academic community, uh, which writes paper after paper and has seminar after seminar about nuclear weapons command and control and 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 alerts and strategic stability have completely glossed over the fact that the United States went to DEFCON 3 on 9-11, uh, the second highest level of alert in the U.S. military. That means that there are automatically things that all U.S. forces do worldwide once that declaration is put forth. And uh, it was enough to even provoke the Kremlin to call the White House and ask to speak to President Bush that Vladimir Putin wanted to talk to Bush and uh, to ask, hey, what the hell's going on? Why are you going on alert at a time when we are uh, stopping our exercises and ratcheting down our military activity in order to signal to you that we have no hostile intent? And really, I think the declaration of DEFCON 3 was a complete and utter mistake. And I mean a mistake even then in this fact that Rumsfeld and Richard Myers, who was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that day. Uh, the chairman was uh, on a plane going to Europe for some NATO party. Um, that uh, they, they misread what the DEFCON meant. They misread what it, what it was all about. And even though Cheney in the White House told Donald Rumsfeld that before he declared DEFCON 3, he should probably speak to the president uh, they declared it anyhow, and that and that uh, just the examination of the decisions around that event and and the implications of what had happened afterwards. And ironically, if you look at the logs of the Pentagon for 9/11, or you look at the conventional histories that have been written, nothing is said about the DEFCON 3 declaration, and nothing is said about uh, what what happened. What happened? When was it undeclared? And when did we go back to normal? And 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 what study was done to ask the question whether it was a good decision or not? So, in my piecing together all of these uh, events from that day, based upon you know gobs of uh, declassified documents, uh, new materials that have been declassified, including. President Bush's uh, detailed schedule for that day, which was only declassified in 2016, uh, it, it, it produced, uh, I think, uh, a, a fairly um, dramatic and, uh, and uh, compelling story, even though we know what happened, uh, or at least we think we know what happened. And, 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 and that's what makes 9-11 still so much of interest to the families to the to the firefighters and other uh, first responders to uh, the academic community to journalism where everybody is doing their retrospective of 9/11 this week uh, because there are still so many unanswered questions. I think the best analogy I could think of to explain on that day is this is kind of like when you hear like speculation about. Uh, let's say X, Y, and Z happens with Biden or Trump, right? And you got CNN is this and Fox is that and Facebook is this and Reddit is that. And it's, did you even read the article? Did, and then you finally go and watch it. 
And it's like, it's not sexy on either side. It's just the most, you know, benign, like, uh, we're increasing vaccine production and hoping for a 4% increase this week. Thank you. And you're like, what? What? On that day, it's very, you just go through the timeline and you're like, oh, this was just pants down, hair on fire. Planes were crashing into 110-story skyscrapers. You have, you mentioned Garrett Graff's book, uh, Only Plane in the Sky. But his his my favorite book of his uh, Raven Rock Site R, which I've had him on this and everyone knows I'm obsessed with that book. The entire the, the gears of the continuity of government. It's we've got this. I think his quote from the book is we were always convinced that we were just one more study, just one more protocol away from really buttoning up thermonuclear war. But as Eisenhower said, he's like, man will be nuts. They will be going insane. You got like 15 minutes best case scenario. And your book shows that with continuity of government, so sexy on paper, right? I mean, but it's any any battle plan doesn't survive first contact with the enemy. The, 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 the calls are dropping in Air Force One. Where should we take the president? Should we take him to off it? Sure, we'll take him to off it. But there are nuclear bombers there. I, I, I don't know. Just, just go do it. Take him downstairs. We don't know what's going on. And Rumsfeld's running around the Pentagon, and it's, this entire thing is just... What do we do? Do we shoot down airliners? Do we not? I mean, there are snipers at the end of the runway when we're taking off from Sarasota. Uh, another plane just crashed into Camp David. And it's not its not even like it was kind of similar. We're like two planes in New York. And if someone said a third crashed into like Empire State Building, maybe someone looked at the horizon and they saw all the smoke and they thought that. I mean, there are, you really do see the fog of war of just things that truly had no right. I mean, like a plane might be hitting the Sears Tower. Or that plane did hit the Sears Tower. And it's like, what are you what are you talking about? And, you know, I think your book really, whereas History in One Act sexified it, on that day, really what, you just look at it and you go, oh, it was, I mean, horrific. But, I mean, like you said, I mean, I thought about this last night. I was standing in line to get a sandwich because I'm a fat ass. And I was thinking about your book. And I thought about, you know, how did George Bush handle it? And it's very easy, of course, for us to all armchair quarterback it. But the thought dawned on me for the first time since 9-11. If you played out 9-11 a hundred times in just like a universe simulator, do we know if the way we handled it wasn't like top 10%? Like it could have very well been. And we can say, you should have done this, you should have done that. When's the last time anything remotely similar happened to 9-11? FDR was in office. Black and white TVs were like the hot product. They're not comparable. And I think you showed it. It's just, yeah, not popular. Dick Cheney and, and Bush did a good job. What else do you do? What, the, right? The, the well, safety book is written in blood. So, I mean, you, a, a term you use that I think is helpful in understanding the implications of 9-11 for the future is you say fog of war and I say fog of everything. Okay. You know, whether it's COVID or 9-11 or any crisis like Afghanistan that the United States constantly faces, um, we don't seem to do a very good job of learning the lessons of the past. We don't seem to solve the problems that are always present of poor information and poor information flow. You know, we were supposed to have connected all the dots after 9-11, and yet, you know, they were not able to tell the Taliban we're going to take over the country in a week. Yeah. I mean, so the 
the fog of everything, uh, how so much of what happened during COVID, during the January 6th insurrection, et cetera, uh, became, were, were just repeats of the same behavior and the same problems that we faced 20 years ago is really what struck me, how similar they were. And uh, continuity of government is certainly one example because there are 16 successors to the presidency in the constitution. And only one of those 16 people uh, went and did what they were supposed to do in terms of continuity of government. Dennis Hastert, who was the Speaker of the House and now a convicted felon. Um, So you have to ask yourself, like, why do we even have this apparatus? Because if on a a day like 9-11, when a moderate number of people are flowing out of Washington, D.C. to get home to to reunite with their loved ones to evacuate the city um imagine if if a real nuclear war were coming how impossible it would be to get anybody out and uh the notion that somehow you know buses or whatever are going to transport people to mount weather or raven rock or whatever has always been absurd and to some degree you know the i think the government has recognized that that these bunkers are really uh, relics of the past, but they continue to maintain them. They continue to exercise their use. And, uh, and though we have created, you know, uh, redundant communications in order to really uh, uh, achieve some continuity were Washington to be destroyed, you know, there's just no real evaluation of the human element associated with that, which is, is somebody actually really going to go to a bunker when 9/11 or when when a when a nuclear war occurs or another 9/11 occurs and like say goodbye to their family? Hey, good luck. I'm going to I'm going to the bunker. I mean, just on a human level, it makes no sense. So, uh, it, it it everything that occurred on 9/11, continuity of government, uh, bad information, uh, rumors abounding, the government not able to communicate with each other. Uh, the DEFCON 3 alert, et cetera. These are all things that I have no confidence whatsoever wouldn't repeat themselves. And that's the fog of everything. The fog of everything is that we can see the feckless response of the government to COVID-19. You know, we can see uh, that they missed everything when it came to January 6th. And that bred so many conspiracies that the Capitol Police let them in, that, uh, that this was all a setup that Antifa was responsible, blah, blah, blah. But so if we don't learn from the past, uh, obviously uh, we're going to repeat it. But more importantly, these are really crucial questions associated with our national defense. We spend billions of dollars a year on continuity of government. I, I at this point have to ask why, what's the point? What's the point of doing it? Just make your utilities and your communications infrastructure more robust and redundant. And that's the best you can possibly hope for because if a new clan's on the White House, none of that continuity of government makes a damn bit of difference. And on 9-11, none of it made any difference. So here we have the two most profound cases in our lifetimes and none of it made any difference. I, I think the next lesson that I learned is that, um, you know, if I had some secret about George Bush's dog on 9-11, it would get more attention than these boring thoughts. Yeah. 
these these essential questions of democracy and governance. If if I had some secret that said that, you know, that Donald Rumsfeld was secretly a homosexual, I I would get more attention than than actually laying out the story of what happened. And I think as we've seen in the last few weeks, as the 9-11 families have banded together demanding the declassification of the Saudi documents, and as others have started to again raise the questions of whether or not 9-11 was or was not an inside job and what the government did or did not do, that we pay the price. We pay the price for for not paying attention to the facts, for for not even understanding what are the crucial questions. And, and, and I'm, I've never really been a critic of the 9-11 Commission, but when I look back upon it now, I see to what degree the 9-11 Commission was an extension of the government in the sense that, yes, it asked important questions, but no one was held accountable. There was no real finger pointing to say that George Tennant should be responsible or George Bush or whoever. Uh, and and that really, I think, uh, created the the sort of foundation of distrust which exists in our society today. And then second, the 9/11 Commission was, you know, it was a boon to the government, right? Let's have a Department of Homeland Security. Let's have a Director of National Intelligence. Let's have this. Let's have that. Let's have this. Let's have that. So it was. It was a boon. I mean, everybody benefited. I mean, even Al Qaeda benefited from from 9/11 in the sense that nobody had ever heard of it before 9/11, and all of a sudden they're a household name, <laughs> getting getting thousands of new adherents and spawning ISIS and and other organizations around the world. So, so how do you deal with an event which is so beneficial to so many? And uh, even recently, I've I, I've uh, been on a cup an interview with um, uh, the people who administered the 9/11 compensation fund, and and how they doled out 7.2 billion dollars to uh, the families of those who lost their lives on 9/11, and and that it was done like within six months of 9/11, like. And, and, and when you ask them now, the, the people who administered that fund, why was it done so quickly? There was, they basically, their answer is, well, because if you took money, you, you had to sign a document that said you weren't going to sue the airlines, you weren't going to sue the government, you weren't going to take any legal action. <laughs> and so we spent $7.2 billion in taxpayers' money Hush to money. buy off the families of 9-11 in order to secure their silence. And so I, I, I just, everything about it today still stinks to high heaven. And though we look at a Pearl Harbor and try to examine why wasn't the information known, why didn't they make the decisions they needed to make, where did all that information reside? You know, that's 1945 40, or 42, and we are still grappling with the story of Pearl Harbor and yet on 9-11 the number of like new stories being done this last couple of weeks and and this week about 9-11 new research new insights uh are are pretty limited uh really pretty limited and and uh and if I wrote an article tomorrow what happened to Spot and Barney uh I'd probably get 
uh, as many hits as if I wrote an article tomorrow saying we almost went to nuclear war with Russia. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, the continuity of government. It kind of makes, why are we still doing it? And it's like uh, the comedian Tim Dillon said, you know, he's like, you know, you get older and you ask, why do we go to church? But he goes, growing up in the 80s and 90s, you ask your Irish Catholic parents, dad, why do we go to mass on Sunday? And he says, shut up. And that's the answer. And, you know, with the continuity of government, it's like, why are we still doing this? And at a certain point, maybe it's just like, it's the best we have. I don't, you know, who wants to be the one that says we we can't do this? We have this network of bunkers under thousands of feet of granite, and they're buttoned up, and they can recycle their own air, and they have all these MREs. And I guess at a certain point, it's like, I don't know, man, like, what else do you want? You know, we have a hollowed out a mountain. And maybe it is just, it's comfort, you know, it's not. Maybe it's not the best, but maybe it's just if we throw money at it and the, the, the vault doors close, hey, man, you know, we'll call it a day. It might be that. Well, you know, I, I think that you're more in the arena of reality when you say nobody wants to be the person to say no. Yeah. And that's even about the war on terrorism, right? Nobody wants to say, okay, you know, we've eroded Al-Qaeda and these external organizations enough. We've built up our homeland security enough uh, to be able to say we're safe enough. We're safe enough. And then, and, then, and then the answer that you get is, well, I don't want to be the knucklehead, the congressman, the senator, the president who says that. Yeah. And then there's a terrorist attack tomorrow or next week or next year, and all of a sudden I'm the GOAT. So I think that this tendency uh, to never shut the spigot on anything, you know, not to shut the spigot on nuclear weapons, not to shut the spigot on continuity of government, not to shut the spigot on, on uh, uh, the Pentagon growth and the national security establishment's growth. I mean, here, here's a funny irony that you can think about, Tommy. I mean, in the aftermath of the end of the war in Afghanistan, Congress added $25 billion to the defense budget. So really? not fighting in Afghanistan costs us more. So now we have a defense budget approaching $800 billion a year. And really, it's time to just fundamentally ask, what are we getting for that money? You know, we, we're buying fewer ships, planes, and tanks than we've ever bought in our history you know, so much of that money is going towards cooler and cooler software and better and better collection platforms and, and more and more intelligence. And, uh, and, and, and does that really uh, constitute what we need to defend the country? And does it really add to our security? And those basic questions, we just don't answer anymore because because we're so overwhelmed with what's going on in every day, the fog of everything, that that we're not able to even get close to the fundamental questions of governance and of the preservation and protection of our democracy. Yeah, no one wants to slaughter that sacred cow. And I don't know if this is the best analogy. Um, it, uh, to preface it, on Sunday I am having on uh, a Marine who's six, seven years younger than me, who just got back from Kabul, lost several of his friends in that suicide bombing. And so I want to preface it with like, I understand, or I understand that I don't understand the sincerity of it. But, you know, it's coming out that 
you know, apparently we did have eyes on the suicide bomber and there was a there was a drone and they were told to stand down. And, you know, on one side you see everyone here's, you know, Biden's got blood on his hand as if every other prior president doesn't. But, you know, what we are seeing now, what makes it to the news, like what Eisenhower told JFK in Garrett Graff's Raven Rock, only the hard questions get to you. We see, oh, they had eyes on the target. And everyone that watches this podcast knows I'm not even I'm not even a, a big Biden guy. They had eyes on the target. They told him to stand down because they were negotiating with the Taliban, and that led to 13 U.S. deaths. Yes, horrible. But had that actually, and I know this is pie in the sky idyllicness, but had that actually led to some sort of uh, negotiation with the Taliban, and had that had there been no suicide bombing, that would have never made the news that we had eyes on a target and told him not to do it. We only hear about the guy that said no. Don't do it. Don't do it. And 13 deaths on his hands. And it's it's the same thing. Who's going to say no? We Do we need a B-21 Raider? Say no. Say goodbye to your four stars, right? It's, it's, I mean, you go into it and the generals have no clothes. Just change the threat. Need a new threat. Need bigger bases. Need more things. And it's, it's not, it's not even this Illuminati. They want the machine. No, it's just, who's saying no? What, you don't like the red, white, and blue? You, you know, and it's, and I'm as patriotic as anyone, but Who's gonna? Who's turns off the spigot and then nine eleven happens? Do you want to be the guy? Do you want to be the? It's like that political cartoon of the the two guys falling from the World Trade Center and one looks at the other and their ties are flapping and he says, "How do you feel about enhanced interrogation?" And it's like, you know, frame it like that. Who's gonna say no? It's well. So again, I I look at. Afghanistan is a decision-making problem. I think what President Biden said initially is probably the most intelligent thing he said, which was there's no amount of military force that's going to resolve this conflict or finish it in a way that's any more acceptable to those who are still in favor of keeping forces in Afghanistan. Correct. Um, he can't say, no, he knows. And besides that, Afghanistan is one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and the Afghan military is a Potemkin village, and we really don't have the capacity to uh, win the hearts and minds after all of what we've done. So that, those are the dirty secrets that they don't admit to when they make decisions like this. And then, and then I think there's like another element of it that we often miss, and that is, you know, the, the, the mistake was sending thousands of Marines into Kabul, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids uh, in the first place. Like, like, but we live in a society where that's all we have, the military. Yeah. So, for instance, in, in COVID, you know, why didn't we mobilize doctors. I, I know that sounds funny, but we do have something called the public health service in America. And, um, and it every, and, and I bet you there's not nobody in American society who even knows of its existence, except people who live on Indian reservations where they are very active. Uh, uh, but the truth of the matter is that we needed to send in the doctors. We needed to send in the nurses, the, the doctor reserve and the nurse reserve. And, and we don't have such a thing. So the, the National Guard becomes the yeah. the the carrier of everything, 
um, because that's all we have. And so again, when we when a decision was made by somebody in the Pentagon to recommend that we put thousands of troops on the ground to facilitate the withdrawal, um, you have to ask yourself, why didn't they send in special ops guys? Why didn't they send in seasoned troops? I mean, why did they only send in the 18-year-olds? And, and, and to some degree, I mean, it's just the way the military operates. It's the way the military is. But in our society, it's also the case that the military is the catch-all to fill every vacuum. And, uh, and, and that has been our mistake for decades and everybody sort of knows it, but nobody ever really does anything about it. And now the military has more uh, roles and more um, responsibilities than ever before. The Department of Homeland Security, which was created merely to deal with terrorism, is now into everything from computer hacking to uh, election security. I mean, its mission is so broad that uh, one can basically take the counterterrorism mission away and it, it still would continue to operate <laughs> as a $50 billion a year bureaucracy. So, so, you know, I know that one can point fingers. One can point fingers at 9-11. One can point fingers uh, for COVID. One can point fingers for Afghanistan. But I'm more focused on the question of what is it that we can do that would avoid the repeat of the same behaviors and the same uh, practices in the future? And, I, I, and, I, and that's why I wrote on that day. I thought that a, a closer examination by people of your generation, you know, people who were kids or weren't even alive on 9-11, let's remember that if there were 18 and 19-year-olds in Afghanistan, they weren't even alive when the attacks on 9-11 occurred, Right. And most of those kids under the age of 25 or so have no memory of 9-11 whatsoever. So think about it in terms of the future college students and public policy practitioners. That soon is going to be an event that isn't in people's memories. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, Tommy, you, you barely remember it. And I've talked about it with my adult daughters and they, they were kids, they're your age and they were kids during nine 11. And they said, basically, yeah, some planes hit the world trade center and we don't really know why and all that. And they never learned anything in school about it. So maybe a neutral book, like on that day, a neutral book, like the only plane in the sky by Garrett Graff, a neutral book, like, uh, a history of 9-11 that isn't a, just a government story, uh, those will become the textbooks of tomorrow. Those will become the way in which people learn about 9-11. When we can have a model UN or something like it that simulates the decision-making on that day, that lets people study it in more depth and understand the implications and understand uh, the, 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 the aspects of 9-11 that continue to endure. So my hope in writing something that was hyper uh, uh, detailed, neutral, neutral. Oh, I was going to say neutral. detailed. Yeah, detailed but neutral, neutral. You know, I ask the questions. When I can answer them, I answer them. But when I can't, I still let the question hang. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the full story of the Declaration of Defense Condition Three. I don't know the full story of continuity of government. Uh, I'll give you another example. There's like one 
entry and on that day, I, I should probably make a contest for people in which an airplane, which had flown from Fayetteville, North Carolina to Washington, D.C., returned to Fayetteville, North Carolina. And that's all we really know, except it was a government plane. Oh, oh, I, I might not be stupid anymore. There's one, there's one screenshot I took of the entire book. And I circled it in red, as you can see. I don't know if this is it. Special Ops Flight. Yes, it is. Special Ops Flight N241LA and 24LA Cessna Citations. You can never call me stupid again. From Maryland, Fayetteville, North Carolina. This is the only reference to the possibility that Special Operations Forces, the military's, quote, Black National Mission Force, are operating on 9-11. And I, I literally screenshot that yesterday because I, I was like, wait, 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 what do you mean? Like, I knew about, you know, the doomsday airplane, sure, all that. I knew we went and got the Cheneys and, you know, flight yeah. stuff for exceptions. I knew they're crop dusters. Yeah. I had never heard of that. There you go. Okay, well, today you're not an <laughs> idiot. But, um, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that we know that the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, uh, is present during all of these events that they're lurking in the background. If there's a hostage taking or if there's a nuclear threat, and 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 here it is. Now we are 20 years later and just learning of the fact that they were present in Washington on 9/11 as well. Doing what? Maybe readying to uh, to evacuate Cheney. Maybe waiting for uh, an on the ground uh, terrorist attack in which they would have to react uh, during the day. I mean, we forget. I think that by 9.37 in the morning, all of the attacks of 9-11 had taken place. Yeah. They, 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 they still yeah. suspected that there were additional planes, and for a while they were not able to find a, a United Airlines uh, uh, 93. They were not able to find American Airlines 77 that hit the Pentagon. They weren't sure which planes did which. They were not really capable of putting that information together. So there was probably genuine concern that there could be more attacks. I mean, after all, if you've had four, then why not five? Yeah. And 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 so I have some sympathy for the government, but the things that were going on in the background, uh, you know, we always what what the conventional histories say is that the Secret Service stopped President Bush from coming and oh look they're the bad guys because President Bush wanted to return home to Washington but there was a lot more going on and 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 it's just it doesn't appear in any of the conventional histories you know and so that makes me ask was JSOC in Washington DC for January 6th uh, was JSOC in Washington DC during the early days of COVID I mean and what would they be doing on January 6th, you know, once the vice president is sort of being held hostage and somewhere in the Capitol building, uh, the number one successor to the presidency and a man who is accompanied by a military aide who is carrying the nuclear codes, the football, maybe JSOC is rushed to the scene in order to be prepared to extract the vice president if necessary. 
And there's an inaugural coming up in a couple of weeks. So they're already preparing for the potential of there being uh, a violent or at least contested uh, inaugural. So they're obviously there, but we don't talk about it. And so therefore we relegate our story to, oh my God, look at all the mistakes that the US Capitol Police made while not acknowledging that, hey, it's ultimately the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security's responsibility to have the intelligence. It's ultimately the sergeant at arms of the Senate and the uh, uh, who is responsible for the security of the Capitol building. Like the U.S. Capitol Police works for him, and 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 ultimately there are assets at our disposal: the so-called National Mission Forces out of the Joint Special Operations Command that are doing their own contingency plans and their own contingency planning. And by not acknowledging that and by not talking about it, to some degree, we are shortchanging ourselves into understanding why events unfold the way they do. A lot to on, on... Hey, good find, yeah. I gotta say. Thank you very much. That, that hat's off to you. That I, I've got, I was thinking, I was like, I wonder what he's gonna ask. I am, I am gonna, I am gonna pat myself on the Fuck yeah! <laughs> but um. Yeah, well, so after you you failed every other exam, <laughs> you have an A now. So hey. uh, you're at least working upward. Hey, what do they call the the guy who finishes the last of his med school class? Doctor. Now is this medical school? No, but I'll take it. It's you know it's but it's fascinating to what you th- we we did say about the Secret Services. You know, a lot of people do get that. You know, Bush didn't respond. Cheney was picked up out of his office by the belt loops and collar and rushed out of the hallway like the the you don't have control over this stuff i mean towards the end of the day right bush started to put his foot down and say listen we, this is about morale this is about you have to be seen as a leader and you could maybe say that that then trump's actual you know physical safety i say that loosely physical safety of the presidency if they have the continuity of government quote unquote they might actually start to say you showing your face does have more power maybe he just said i'm in charge i want to see my wife and who's going to say no but yeah, it does all. It does start to get a little, a little weird when you think about those those two craft. Because I mean, I had just watched a video like a couple of weeks ago on these like special operations aircraft, and it wasn't some advanced F twenty two thing. It was they called it the Draco, and it just looks like a blacked out Cessna. And so when you said that, my initial thought was uh, doomsday plane. But then no, that's that's everyone knows what that is. Okay. And then my thought was CIA extra extra. What is it? Extraordinary rendition. No, but that was post 9-11. That was right. The tail numbers on the Learjet. But you said that and you said they went, you know, and they knew everything that was in the air from, you know, crop dusters. I think Bush said I never knew how many crop dusters were in the United States till 9-11. And for right first time they have fighter jet escorts. You're talking about all these guys. They flew like 149 sorties that day. No one really knew what was going. The entire thing was just right when the plane was coming towards the United States over the Atlantic. They were getting ready. Right? They were mistaking military aircraft. I think you said like a, a a refueling plane. They mistook for something. What are those two black aircraft? I mean, what what the hell is that? Well, so hopefully some enterprising researcher will now do a FOIA and try to find out the answer. Um, But, you know, as much as we can easily say they fucked up doing this and they screwed up doing that, 
when you actually look at the day, the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, is in Wisconsin giving a speech. The head of FEMA is in Montana attending an emergency services conference for the states. Uh, Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, is in Peru at an OAS meeting, Organization of the American States. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is on a plane on his way to um, to uh, Hungary. Uh, uh, you know, you look at that and you say to yourself, you know, why don't the people who think that this was some kind of government conspiracies recognize how ill-prepared they were, how, how little information they had. And really, in the end, the most extraordinary outcome of 9-11, I think, and that no one was really held accountable, is that George Tennant didn't fall on his sword and resign in shame. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I truly, truly don't understand that. I, I you know, no CIA director is, is, uh, is that powerful or... Or, or that indispensable that they uh, that they should continue in their job. And ultimately, look, you can point fingers at the Bin Laden unit for not recognizing the two in San Diego, and you can point fingers at the FBI for not putting together the pieces on Musawi, the the uh, the Minneapolis flight student who was arrested on August 16th. Uh, you can. You can point fingers in all sorts of directions, but ultimately the director of the Central Intelligence Agency is responsible for the intelligence that protects the United States. He's ultimately the one person that should have been uh, fired. And today he's like some you know, investment banker in New York uh, living the life of luxury uh, after having completed uh, two more years at the helm of the CIA. So uh, I, I really think you know, you you probably are on to something when you talk about Donald Trump staying in the White House during COVID. I mean, unfortunately, it's a combination of uh, maybe a sensible foreign policy uh, combined with uh, his narcissistic um, uh, need to be everywhere, and and probably also his his you know his inability to pay attention and to anything serious. But in the end, if 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 continuity of government recommendations had been followed you know if that war plan had been implemented and pence had been sent to the bunker or 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 trump had been evacuated from the white house oh my god could you imagine how much more public discomfort and 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 public uh uh uh, questions there it would have provoked especially when we see today that in some ways, in some places in America, COVID is as bad as it was in March 2020. And um, and yet governance seems to be working fairly normally. The National Guard seems to be working fairly normally. Our entire country seems to be uh, working fairly normally. And um, and you have to ask yourself then why what what was you know, the proper response. And, and, and for 9-11, obviously the same question needs to be asked. What was the, what was, what would have been the best response? What would have been the best thing to happen when the president himself is in Sarasota, Florida, uh, promoting an early reading program that Laura Bush, his wife is uh, really keen on promoting. She's on Capitol Hill about to testify before the education committee on the same subject. So uh, that, is insight to the fact that look when nothing else is 
penetrating the White House when nothing else seems to be of importance when those all those national security titans of the past, Rumsfeld, Powell, Cheney, uh, Condoleezza Rice, are now in charge, uh, they themselves perceived that there was no threat to America, and they themselves therefore operated as if there were no threat to America. But as for Richard Clark or George Tennant, who you know now have at least a higher high chair to say to themselves, well, it, we warned. It's like, well, yeah, you did and you didn't. And, uh, and, uh, but, but ultimately you failed to do your job. The director of counterterrorism and the director of the CIA should have both uh, been driven out of office in shame. And at least then there would have been the signal that somebody was going to be held accountable. You know, somebody was going to be held accountable. Some, yeah, sacrifice, symbolic sacrificial cow. It's, yeah, I remember thinking last fall or uh, last summer, right? All those, you see it on Reddit, but you're right, it's bunker bitch. And I just remember thinking, I was like, I get a lot of people hate Trump, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't completely understand it. I was like, I just remember thinking, I was like, if you think that he has any control over that, the same, you know, of on 9 11. When they took Bush and put him in the air and surrounded by and said, we're going to off it. And no one even knows we're going to off it. I mean, man, you see a riot. And this is right. That's before January 6th. There's a riot outside the White House in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, they're throwing them down. In the- you said it best. You said it best in on 9-11 in the, in the Pentagon when they told everyone to start fleeing, start evacuating. And they said, take off your, your official badges in case there are snipers. Right. Because you got to think in the fog of everything, whoever's attacking has that advantage. Right. I mean, that's what that's what Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris wanted to do on uh, at Columbine. They want to they want to blow some stuff up. And when the kids came out, they wanted to shoot. So these guys thinking and I, I, mean, I had never heard it before. And then I hear it now. I'm like, that's silly. It was an airplane. Why would they want why would they want snipers? These guys were thinking in that we don't know what's going on. And they thought immediately what's like the first thing that uh, take off the important badges and run and. Again, if they hadn't done that, and let's say there were snipers, we would always, you know, we would know about the snipers outside the Pentagon, as bad as the jumpers from the World Trade Center. To me, that right there was that right there is a perfect, or not analogy. It's a symbol of they were doing the best they could with what they had. You come into the ER and you're unconscious and you're bleeding. They're running everything. They don't know what it is. And in hindsight, you can go, can you believe they tested him for a spider bite when it was clearly a gunshot wound? Well, they didn't know. So so I think that you're putting your finger on another problem which exists in American society and is part of the fog of everything. When you imagine that there might be snipers sitting outside the Pentagon ready to pick people off in onesies and twosies because they're evacuating after 9-11, you're imagining something that happens in the movies. Yeah. And there used to be something, there used to be a lot of uh, articles and books written about how sometimes Ronald Reagan would say things that really only happened in the movie. And he thought that that was real life. And, you know, and so again, on, on even on January sixth, um, yeah, th- they were unprepared, and they and, and ultimately even there is evidence that the Capitol Police, once realizing that they were overwhelmed, sort of stepped aside and hoped that there wasn't going to be violence inside the Capitol building. But 
The truth of the matter is that what we imagine the government can do, what we imagine they should do, is driven so much by the movies. It's driven so much by yeah. uh, exaggeration of, of 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 government of government capabilities. I mean, in the movies, you know, when when Joe says to Mary in the command center. Uh, you know, what, what, what do we know about this guy? She makes a few clicks on the keyboard and she knows the name of the guy's dog yeah. and, uh, and yeah. uh, where he shopped yesterday or 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And, and, and that picture of the government does know everything and that the CIA knows everything, et cetera, is, is, is one that dogs uh, an understanding of, of realistic governance and realistic, uh, uh, rule of our country uh, that that intelligence is 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 inherently complicated and difficult and it always is the case i think Locke johnson once said that the first law of an of any crisis is that yes we always we had enough intelligence we just didn't put it together and so i i think that this influence of our imaginary government over actual governance, it, 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 and it's especially prevalent amongst the armchair uh, commentators, uh, uh, you know, and that that prevalence is something that is going to dog our society forever because we seemingly can't separate reality from fantasy. You know, we've to not to spiral off, but you know, I've often thought like what would be more brilliant than if if Snowden was doing his job and got everyone to believe that there was some hyper-omnipotent NSA because they realized they were getting lost in the data. You want people to start to believe that it's like enemy of the state, enemy of the state right? I mean, there's some benefit to that. Um, but I don't remember what I was going to say next. Let's, let's wrap this one up and... Uh, I'm obviously going to go through the rest of your library because I love doing that and I love chatting with you. Okay, so I'll say again, this has all been a discussion about on that day, which yes. is oh, yes. the definitive timeline of 9-11. I was going to get to uh, And on Saturday, Newsweek is going to live tweet minute by minute what happened 20 years ago okay. at Road to 9-11. And so we're we're just finishing up the software of being able to do this feat over 500 separate tweets that'll take you into what happened on that day 20 years ago and you can follow it at road to 9-11 so uh, I, that's a really interesting project too because we're really now trying to make the use of social media for something that's positive and uh and if people are interested in in what happened on 9-11 they'll have they'll have these 500 or so tweets that will take them through minute by minute of what actually did happen on the ground. Awesome. And yeah, and lest we forget, um, we did an episode two days ago, but also way back episode 77 for everyone listening, Tony Tedeschi, New York City firefighter who responded to Ground Zero, he used to be my workout buddy. We've done an episode again just to talk about it. And so it's not forgotten. So it doesn't, you know, I, I was 11 years old. I remember my mom crying. My mom talks about she remembers when JFK was killed because all she remembers was her mom crying. It, it's got to it's gotta stay in the present or we're going to repeat it. Um, and yes, 
on that day, definitive timeline of 9-11. I will put it in the description. It's on Kindle. I don't believe it's on Audible yet, is it? No, no it's not. not. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's an actual book. Yeah, I know. Well, I don't know how to read. I've told you. I don't know how to read. It's it's all hieroglyphics to me. Um, Will Arkin, thank you, sir. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to stop recording. I want to say something. But um, everybody listening, thank you for listening. Please go pick up the book. Also, the other books we've gone over, uh, Unmanned, The Generals Have No Clothes, and History in One Act. My personal favorite so far is The Generals Have No Clothes. To me, it's just perfect. But let me stop recording. Recording.